Well, I've looked forward to gathering with you this morning. This morning we conclude our series in the prodigal son. We've spent uh, three weeks by way of review looking at this passage, this story that Jesus told that is full of so much truth for us. Over the first week, we looked at how this parable tells us something about the graciousness of God the Father. In the second week, we looked at the two ways that we sin. How the younger brother sinned by no-holds-barred irreligion. But how the older brother sinned by rule-keeping, self-righteous religion. Last week, we had the opportunity to look at how both the older and the younger brother teach us something that we need to learn about repentance. And today, we conclude by asking ourselves a very important question. Where is Jesus in this passage? Is Christ to be found in the story of the prodigal son? We see the father, we see the sinners. But where in the world is Jesus? Do you see him anywhere? Listen as I read. And Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so the father divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything... A severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And he went and he hired himself to one of the citizens of that country. And that citizen sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am here dying with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother became angry and was not willing to go in. So his father came out and began to plead with him. But the the older son answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you. And I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat 
so that I might celebrate with, with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. I ask the question again. Where do you see Jesus in this parable? Now in your bulletin, you've got a little fill-in-the-blank outline. And we'll see several things here. But the first thing that we have to admit is that it's not obvious in this parable where Jesus is. And so in order for us to fully understand this, we have to go back to the first uh, couple verses of Luke chapter 15 to see the context in which this was happening. It turns out that tax collectors and sinners, the younger brother types, were incredibly drawn to Jesus in his ministry. But in chapter 15, verse 2, it says, The Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so the controversy over Jesus' reception of tax collectors and notorious sinners is the context for which Jesus tells a series of parables, one of which we have looked at, the parable of the so-called prodigal son. But in the early part of Luke 15, Jesus tells two other parables that are important. Beginning in verse 3, Jesus tells the story of the lost sheep and how the shepherd leaves his flock to find the one who is straying. Similarly, in verses 8 through 10, Jesus tells the story of the lost coin and the search that the woman makes to find it. When we look at the two parables immediately preceding the parable of the prodigal son, something becomes startlingly clear, crystal clear. In the preceding stories, a comprehensive search is made for what is lost. A comprehensive search is made for what is lost, but no search is made for the lost son in our story. In both of these preceding stories, you're dealing with relatively modest items. A single solitary sheep and some pocket change that has been lost in the cushion of a couch. Yet the people who are searching for this allow nothing to distract them from the rescue mission that they are intent on. This is a startling contrast when we come to the story of the lost son. How much more valuable is a lost boy than an animal or a coin? The son is infinitely more valuable Yet there is no obvious attempt to search for him at all. And there's a sad but very easy truth to understand why this happened. You see, your second point is this. That the younger brother is not searched for because he has a self-righteous Pharisee for an older brother. What did we just say in chapter 15 verse 2? 
The scribes and the Pharisees did what when Jesus received the tax collectors and sinners? They grumbled. They criticized. And the older brother proves that he himself is in that camp because he goes, let that young guy go and get what he deserves. And so no search happens because the younger brother in this story has a self-righteous Pharisee for an older brother. Now, a pastor by the name of Tim Keller in New York City has really opened up this passage and explained some things about the ancient Near Eastern family that is very helpful to understand. You see, in that day and age, it would have been the older brother's responsibility out of love for his brother and respect for his father to undertake a never-ending search if necessary, an extensive search at his very own expense. But because he is who he is, there is no search. Actually, that might not be true. In our story, we may have a hint that the older brother did go searching for his younger brother. You remember what the Bible says about the younger brother, how he spent his money? The Bible gives a very vague statement. It says that the younger brother spent his money how? On loose living. Now, you can fill in the blank for that, but the Bible doesn't. It gives the larger term instead of the more specific term. However, once the younger son comes home and the older son finds out about it, and then the father goes out to speak with the older son, the older son drops a hint that he knew something that was going on with the younger son, doesn't he? He says, you've never even given me a goat. You haven't spent any money on me. Yet when this son of yours, who has wasted your money on prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Here's a question. The Bible says, loose living. The older brother says, prostitutes. How did he know? Could it be that in his pharisaical mind, if his brother wasn't sinning that bad, well, then I'll bring him home. Could it be that the older brother spent his money and conducted a search only to go, what a waste. I will leave him here to wallow in his own sin and misery. Had he searched for his brother and tragically given up? Was the younger son written off is not worth the investment? Good heavens, may God's people never have that kind of mentality. The sad truth is, instead of having a gracious and compassionate and loving older brother... The young man in our story had a Pharisee. Evidently, the younger brother had sinned too much. He had gone too far. He had done something extreme enough not to warrant the older brother's love, compassion, forgiveness, and grace. And friends, as we read this, here's where the good news comes out clearly for us. 
You see, we don't have an older brother like that. We don't have a self-righteous, self-impressed, self-concerned brother. Instead, we have a true elder brother, Jesus Christ. In contrast to the older brother in our story, Jesus proves to be a very different older brother, a true older brother. While we've already seen a picture of God as a gracious father, we now get to see a beautiful picture of Jesus as a seeking savior. And we're reminded very clearly from Jesus' own lips that Jesus came to seek sinners. If he's found you, by implication, you are saying what? I'm a sinner. Sometimes we just walk with him so long that we seem to forget that. And it becomes easy like the older brother to begin to look down our nose at other people's faults and foibles when the truth is we were saved by God's grace just as much as anyone else was. And so Jesus says that he came to seek sinners while the older brother His seeking was either non-existent or weak. Jesus states it plainly. I've come to seek them. And it's important for us to understand that for a pious Jew, there were four possible opinions to have about sinners. So we'll run it out here. On the most extreme is hatred for sinners. That comes through in the Pharisees and scribes' attitude. They don't want anything to do with sinners. If I am in the same zip code with a sinner, his sin might contaminate my self-righteousness. And so I don't even want to be in the same house with somebody like that. Have you seen that kind of attitude among God's people? Sadly, I have. Let's move it on here a little bit. From hatred to just indifference. I don't really care about sinners and they don't really care about me. The third opinion, and this is what Jesus was accused of, is that he welcomes sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and traitors. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't stop here. He didn't just welcome them. Number four, he sought them. As a matter of fact, Jesus sought sinners with such abandon that people question the character of the Son of God. I really do think if Jesus came in the flesh in our day and age, there would be a lot of church people that would not be impressed. Because he was willing to put his character on the line, not to be contaminated with their sin, but to save them. So Jesus came to save, to seek sinners. Secondly, while the older brother was angry at the personal cost of the brother's restoration... Jesus was glad to pay the fullest price for the redemption of younger brothers. You see, forgiveness always costs somebody something. You've got to give your grudge up if you're going to forgive your spouse. You've got to give being able to hang something over someone's head to pursue reconciliation. There may be a physical debt to be repaid if you have swindled someone. Forgiveness 
is always costly. And I love this story because it so clearly contrasts with the attitude of the older brother. There's a story that's told of a young, young boy whose little sister was in desperate need of a blood transfusion. The doctor explained to the family that she had the very same disease that her older brother had recovered from two years earlier and that the only chance for her recovery was for a transfusion from someone who had previously beat the disease. Now, as a young boy, that's a terribly scary proposition. You're going to take my blood? And since the two children had the same identical blood type, the doctor asked the obvious question. Johnny, will you give your blood to Mary? He had to stop and think for a second. His little lip started to quiver. And he looked at his sister. He smiled. He said, for her, I will do it. And soon, both children, strapped to their beds, rolled in, and little Johnny gets that little needle put in his arm. And he begins to watch the blood going out of his body into the tube. Seven-year-old boy wonders, what happens next? And he asks the doctor this question. Doctor, what will it feel like when I die? And the doctor began to understand very clearly why Johnny hesitated, even if it was just for a second. He thought that the process of giving his blood meant that he was sacrificing his life for his sister. What would you be willing to sacrifice for the redemption of lost younger brothers? They may not be your flesh and blood, but they are created by a loving father just as you are. And they're lost, and they don't know any better. And so while little Johnny thought that giving blood to his sister, that giving up his life, he didn't have to die to save his sister. They just needed a bit of blood. But our redemption, however, required not just Jesus' blood, but his life. And he was glad to pay that price. It is with joy set before him that he looked at the cross and said, I will do that. Not begrudgingly. Glad to be obedient to his father and to see the fruit of his labor as people come to love and trust in Christ. And it's a precious truth because Jesus is glad not only to rescue us, but he desires to continually live with us. In our story, the younger boy comes home. That's great news, isn't it? That's why you search to find. Yet everything's not good in the home. Because the older brother isn't even willing to step foot in the house because the younger brother is there. 
Jesus does not have that kind of attitude. He doesn't only die for us. He lives with us. And he hopes to transform us through his Holy Spirit. While the older brother didn't want to be around the younger brother at all, Jesus wants to be around us. The question is whether we'll have him. It's important to understand this because Jesus didn't die just for a transaction to buy us back from Satan. Jesus died that there would be transformation, that our lives would look different because of the truth of the gospel. Just like in this story, the son that had run off now knows the love of the father and he loves him back. The younger son has been transformed and the older son begins to walk down a very dangerous path of continued self-righteousness. The younger son has tasted and seen that indeed the father is good and he's not leaving again. And the truth is if we allow it, God will use the gospel to radically, radically change us. See, the problem for us who follow Jesus is that even after we're saved, sometimes we begin to look at other things to prove that we're worth it. Our status, our money, new landscape and make our house look better than the house next door. We do all kinds of things to justify ourselves. But the truth is that we only grow in Christ as we grow in deeper appreciation for what he has done for us on the cross. So this morning, as we continue to talk about this wonderful thing that Jesus has done for us, our story concludes with two beautiful images. The son that was lost is found and is where? He's home. He's home. What a powerful but elusive concept. All throughout the Bible, there are exoduses and homecomings, and they all prove to be less than perfect. Because the truth is, on this side of eternity, are we ever really home? You remember the words of Jesus, I go and I prepare a mansion for you. There will be a day when we will really be home. Friends, when we gather as the church, there should be at least a little taste of home. You're not going to get it Monday through Friday, but when God's people gather together for God's purposes, we should be reminded of where we're heading. Now, the problem is most of our churches are full of older brother types. Younger brothers don't want to come because they don't want to get told what to do. They don't really like... Older brother doesn't like the younger brother. The younger brother doesn't like the older brother too. Well, listen, if you're a younger brother type here and you're avoiding church because of the older brothers, that's a form of hypocrisy too. In the church, in the home, rule keepers... And rule breakers are both saved by the grace of God. And we've got to learn to live together as God's people. So it does us good to remember that in one sense, ever since the Garden of Eden, all of us are like younger brothers, wandering from home and wondering when we'll find our way back. 
God offers a way through His grace. The last image is the image of a meal. And this is significant because you have to eat to live. Some of you are really living. The young man had been starving. But once he's home, he's well fed. It's interesting that just like this story ends with a feast, did you know that all of history ends with a feast as well? The Bible calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. And right now, even at this very moment, all of us who are believers in Christ are heading to that meal one day. There will be a day when God's people are fully and finally gathered around His table to enjoy the most gracious provision that Christ has made for us. You may mis, uh, misunderstand or misvalue your salvation right now. You will not on that day. You will see your Savior face to face and you will appreciate His sacrifice. That will be better than any Thanksgiving dinner, better than any Easter dinner, better than any Christmas dinner you can conceive of. But in the meantime, Jesus has left His family another meal by which we're to remember Him. A meal that commemorates his death. And I wonder, why did Jesus choose the imagery of a meal to remind us of his death? And I think it's simply this. You've got to eat to live. You've got to eat to live. Physically. But it's spiritually true, too. Those who feed on Christ live spiritually. And so he wants us to remember that just as we need to eat to live physically, we need to feed upon Christ and his sacrifice to live spiritually. So I believe Jesus has picked something as ordinary as a meal because he wants to convey to us how much we truly need him every hour. Every meal we eat should in one sense remind us of our need to feed upon Christ. And so our invitation this morning is perhaps a little non-traditional. The invitation this morning is to celebrate the things that we have talked about these last four weeks. To know that we have a gracious Father who however we sin through rule-breaking or self-righteous rule-keeping, that there is grace for you if you will repent. Because... We have an elder brother who seeks sinners, who pays the ultimate price, and who desires to be with us for eternity. That's what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. And so while the meal we're about to enjoy really isn't a meal, it's a pretty meager snack, isn't it? A cracker and a little jiggle of juice. The feeding is not in the substance, but it's in the symbolism of what it represents. It's symbolic of the tremendous feast represented in this story, but also the tremendous feast represented at the end of the age. 
And oh, how I hope you'll be there with me. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you with, oh, I don't even know the word. Is it a heavy heart? We're overjoyed at what you have done for us in Christ. You have lived righteously. You have made yourself a perfect sacrifice for our sins, paying our debt to a Father that created us and loved us. And yet we have rebelled against you. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you offer us in Christ. And Lord, we, we pray with fervency. If there is someone here who has not made their peace with God, that today might be the day that they know that their sins are forgiven, that they know the love of God, that they know the sacrifice of Christ. And we pray that even by partaking in this ceremony, that we will eat with such faith that sinners, even here, will be convinced of what a true and gracious and good God you are, for you are. And so, Lord, we ask for your blessings over these proceedings as we gather to remember our true elder brother, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.